Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today we're following up uh, a movie of equal size proportion to Avengers Endgame that I'm sure is going to be seen by just as many people and that's Claire Denis' High Life and I'm happy to be joined by my friend Ben Lubin to talk about this one. Ben, Hi. so I'm really excited to talk to you about this and we and to share this conversation with like the seven other people that saw this movie. But all, all joking aside, I mean, like we've been talking about this one for a while because I know Claire Denis is a filmmaker that uh, means a lot to you. And I was just kind of curious hearing your talk about him. And I thought, oh, well, I'll try and catch up on some of this filmmaker's work before I see this movie. And this movie is told in a nonlinear fashion. So I think we're going to like basically... We're probably going to talk about everything but, like, the last shot um, until we get to the end, and therefore, like, you can't really spoil this movie because you it's just told in this order where you already know everything that happens, basically, right, right from the get-go. You just don't know the how. So the movie follows a, a group of uh, death row inmates that have been sent to on a space mission, and we slowly learn more about exactly what they're doing there and exactly everything that's gone on there, but we kind of pick up right at the beginning of the movie where um, – Monty, played by Robert Pattinson, is there taking care of a baby and doing various things on this spaceship. But I guess I want to back up for a second before we even jump into that, Ben. And Because I went on a little bit of a Claire Denis journey. I don't want to overstate how many of her movies I watched, but I knew I shouldn't go into this movie having only watched one. I only had time to watch two other movies, and I don't know if they're really representative of her filmography. I watched uh, White Material, which came out in 2008, and I watched uh, Let the Sunshine In, which is her most recent movie before this. And... I, I, I again, I, I, based on just what I know about her other movies, I, I this might be a, like a totally unfair statement, but just based on the two I watched and then this one and then kind of what I know about the other things. And I'm not saying that she's not a better filmmaker than this person, but I almost thought like, is she kind of like a French Steven Soderbergh and that it seems like she like effortlessly floats between genres and uh, you're making a face at me. So I, I, I think I, I think I might have just hurled like a huge insult. But I, yeah, what, what, I mean, what, what I'm trying to say is I, there's not like one thing that you can be like, that's a Claire Denis movie based on just like what the general plot is, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, here, here's the thing. So I, I think she has a lot of signatures as a filmmaker, but they're not really in the plot right. as much as they are in the actual films themselves, her approach. Um, I mean, like, I tend, I can recognize a Claire Denis movie within a couple seconds, but it's not because of the plot, and it's not because of the subject matter. Although there is a general interest in most of her movies about bodies, mm-hmm. just kind of what the body is, what the body is both capable of and subject to. And basically she uses the body as a lens in a way that is fairly unique to her. Um, Yeah. And I I would say of the two you watched uh, other than high life, white material is probably more representative of her in general. Let the sunshine in. I love it a lot, but it's kind of like a movie she made in between other movies. It's 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 a trifle and it's an amazing trifle for me. Which shows how uh, good someone is a filmmaker. Something that it, feels, it, seems like, like a side project can be that good because it is. Good. Yeah, it's like I gave it like a four point five out of five on Letterbox, and it's it's like not one of my favorite movies by her, but it's still fantastic. She she is. I'm just gonna like get this out front. Claire Denis is for my money the greatest living working filmmaker. She is not not like one of just she is. Uh, I love her so, so very much. You had, you had, and you had the chance to ask her a question and somehow didn't melt into a puddle a couple weeks ago. Is that right? I mean, I pretty much did. Uh, yeah. So I, I, for the listeners, I was at the uh, Q&A for High Life in Los Angeles and I got called on the Q&A and I had a question I wanted to ask, but I basically kind of went off on this spiel because I got so nervous about 
how much she meant to me and how much her films meant to me. And it basically just kind of thanking her. And I was about to get to my actual question, but maybe I was speaking a little too fast. Maybe her English is not the best. She had to ask her interpreter to translate. Right. And by the time he was finished translating, she jumped right into kind of responding to what I said, and I didn't have a chance to ask my actual question. <laughs> but I still got to, like, thank my favorite living filmmaker for everything she's done. So I count that as a win. What's funny that you said that about her um... – uh, her having to use the translator because I I I'd, I'd heard you tell that story and then I listened to the A twenty four podcast she did with Ryan Johnson, uh, which was interesting where they he, he kind of interviewed her and I mean he was pretty starstruck as well so I don't think you need to feel uh, f- feel ashamed or anything like that if if Ryan Johnson is like nervous around her. Um, I I've joked for a long time that if I met Barry Jenkins the first thing I would do was tell him that we're in competition for the position of Claire Denise number one. <laughs> it's, very, it's very funny that like these American filmmakers that make very different kinds of movies have such high admiration for her. But again, you made the point about language. This is her first English language movie. And also, it's kind of funny because uh, our friend Josh Brown has like tried to stake out doing the movies of this podcast that are like these massive, archurous, huge, big-budget swings that look really bad, but he'll get really excited about them anyway. And conversely, like like you joked earlier, like you've kind of like ended up doing all these movies that like 10 people have seen, uh, whether, whether it be Climax or Beach Bomb or Vox Lux or Burning or whatever, even though actually some of those episodes of the podcast have actually done pretty well, oddly enough. But like this one, this from the side of it, like almost would fall into that category. But at the same time, like we could be talking about something that's like even more out there. This is her first English language movie and using bigger stars, I would say than like she has in like any of other movies. And I think that's, um, or bigger stars by like people that Americans would know, I should say. Yeah. I would say, I mean, like she's worked with some fairly big French names, um, who who are like big in France and who are like big name actors in France. Right. But I mean, and it's funny, uh, Pattinson being involved was a big part of why she was able to get funding. For, for High Life, which is a movie she'd been working on for a long time. Which is really interesting that you, I, I, I don't think I'd actually read that specifically. I had read that she was thinking about Philip Seymour Hoffman when she first conceived of the movie, which is very interesting, too, that, she, that it landed here and then she got the money. And I think we can both agree we're like big Robert Pattinson fans these days that he, oh, yeah. he seems to use his clout to, um, to help people get weird shit made. But my, my, my general point was just that, like, obviously using people that are just going to mean more in, like, the American mainstream and doing something like going into space, which I mean, I personally have a lot of space movie fatigue these days. It just, it just feels like, uh, I mean, there's just been so many movies like the last like five or six years that have gone into space to varying degrees of success. And I'm just like, I'm kind of skeptical and I, I just want it to be something different whenever anyone does it. And I, I knew it was going to be different if nothing else when I went to see this movie, but she's using like these, a, a little more star power, kind of science fiction, more uh, sexy subject matter, I would say than maybe some of her other movies. But like you said, it still feels like a Claire Denis movie. So what, what well, you actually, kind of brought up an interesting point there. Um, Claire Denis, in interviews, has claimed that the movie is not a science fiction movie. Oh, right, right, yeah. And I fundamentally disagree with that, but I think on some level that's because, by and large, we've kind of lost sight of what science fiction is and kind of what it can be. And so I think that, in a lot of ways, High Life is kind of hearkening back to an older sense of, or kind of an older sense of kind of golden age science fiction and in filmmaking, what science fiction used to represent in the 60s and 70s when you saw kind of stuff like 2001, stuff like Solaris, uh, a Kenny, whatever, like something 21, that like weird Czech sci-fi movie that kind of worked in the same vein. And I think like High Life is a hearkening back to 
science fiction as futurist, philosophical, and exploratory. Right, and it's not a survival movie. Uh, Even if, like, a lot of people don't survive this movie, it's not a survival movie, which I think is something that makes it very distinct from, like, some of the other ones we have gotten the last few years, like The Martian or Gravity or even Passengers, which I actually thought was a really interesting conceit but really went south because it tried to be a survival movie. And it's it's about something else other than that, which I think is what makes it most interesting. But, like, I guess what I what I wanted to ask you is that, like, uh, even if it uh, some, of the, some of those aspects might be very new for her, whether it be English language, these stars, um, the subject matter, uh, what, 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 what about this movie, like, made it so distinctly her for you? Because, like you said, you can identify a Claire Denis movie, like, really quickly. Yeah, I mean, one is the way the actors are shot. Um, there is, like, I, I talked about her, her exploration of bodies earlier. Yes. There is a use of the human body as a canvas and uh, basically a subject for kind of infinite potential. Um, in, in White Material, which is another movie you saw, the human body becomes a stand-in for the horrors of colonialism. In High Life, it, it, there's kind of a similar use of like the human body as a microcosm for these larger things. Um, and the way she shoots every facet of the body, there's a scene with Juliette Binoche, which is remarkably physical in a way that feels very familiar for, for Claire Denis. I'm, well, I mean, we, we, we can swear on this podcast, so I'm just going to call it what it is. The scene of Juliet Binoche in the fuck box. Uh, Do they actually, is, does anyone ever refer to it as an actual fuck box, or is it just a box, but we know... No, they, they, they call it the fuck box in the movie. Okay, I couldn't remember if they actually called it that for specifically. I mean, you, you've seen it more recently, but yes. I'm pretty sure they said that. Okay, and okay. Claire Denis has specifically referred to it as the fuck box enough in interviews. <laughs> All right, yeah. then, then we, she, we, we got it right from the source, but yeah. It's, it's canon. Yes. Um... But yeah, of, of Juliette Binoche in The Fuckbox, which is basically, uh, it's a masturbation chamber. But it's, the, the way she, sh- like, she shoots Binoche, mm-hmm. it's purely physical. It, it, it's, it focuses more on her shoulders than anything else. I'm yeah, sure. no, it's, it's not an exploitative scene. Yeah. And it's, it's very raw. It's, it's very physical and it's very dance-like. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a very raw, expressive way. And and the the reason why I thought that is a very Denis signature scene, mm-hmm. she shoots dance scenes a lot. I know you saw Let the Sun Shine In, and yes. there's that, that scene where Juliette Binoche and I think it was Alex Descartes dance. Oh, no, it wasn't him, but it was it's another actor dance to Elle Fitzgerald's At Last, mm-hmm. um, which to me is probably the best scene of the movie. Um, Agreed. Denis puts similar types of dance scenes in a lot of her movies. They kind of, it's it's not about symbolism. It's just very raw and physical and exploratory and personal and intimate. For my money, possibly the greatest scene in film history is the dance sequence from her film 35 Shots of Rum, hmm. which I know for a fact Robert Pattinson and David Ehrlich uh, of IndieWire agree with me on. It's it's a really remarkable scene, and it kind of feels, funnily enough, similar to the Binoche fuckbox scene, because there it's it's raw and physical and dynamic in the same way. And from what I know about Denise's process, she doesn't. It's not heavily storyboarded. It's she just trusts her collaborators enough to know how to capture the right thing in the moment, and she trusts her DPs. She trusts her actors just to know that the right the right physical raw thing will come out of that. 
Yeah, and I'd say there are like a like a handful of movie uh, moments like that in the movie that I guess, I guess I mean or maybe several. I mean there, there's very there's a lot of different things involving certain a lot of different things where the camera focuses on bodies in different ways throughout this movie, and I I and. I, I, that's obviously going to be like probably the most memorable one from this movie, but it's like it's like certainly a a theme throughout the movie. And like as I, I was I was kind of thinking about it, I was like, you know, it's interesting that these people are I don't know they're so far from Earth they don't even know how far from Earth they are, both uh, literally and figuratively, in that they don't actually understand that these people have no intention of ever bringing them back. But you know, like certain biological processes like must go on. And it's something that she just like doesn't let you forget in like very several different graphic ways, whether it be about reproduction or just like regular processes the body needs to function. And actually kind of another signature of Denise's work for me, she's very exploratory. Uh, her films aren't about statements. They're not about answering questions. On some level, they're about finding what questions there are to answer. She's more of an adventurer than she is someone making a coherent, like, basic statement, which is something I really respect about her work because I think it gives it an honesty and a, a purity. What, well, what, that, what are some of the big questions that you thought got raised here then? Because I, 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 I did have one thing in mind if I was going to say she had a statement, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this point. Um, well, just kind of questions. Like, by, by questions, I mean, like, I don't literally just mean questions. I mean... I like new subjects to explore. Basically, in this movie, human relationships in isolation, isolation in general, love, loneliness, which I think is distinct from physical isolation, and on some level, ultimate validation, um, which I think gets to the ending and kind of the arguably fatalist tone of the ending, which I don't think is actually all that fatalist. Right. You know, I thought that one thing I thought about and I and I like when uh, filmmakers can make you think about loneliness in that way, because I think a lot of times like it gets conflated with depression, which just isn't really like an accurate thing. But like some people might equate the two. And, you know, I do think you can like see that on just about every single character in this movie. You can get that. You can read that on all of their faces and expressions at like one point or another in the movie. I mean, not, not, I'm not even thinking about Juliet Binoche in the fuckbox scene, but like as messed up as everything her character does in this movie is, she, she, she probably does feel kind of lonely in like her pursuit of something, even if that something is like incredibly fucked up. Well, yeah, no, it's her pursuit of something has become something all consuming because it's all she has. Right. Um, and part of, she doesn't connect, she doesn't connect to anyone else on the ship. No, something the movie taps into is when you're isolated, when you're alone, when you are in this hole, this cage, little things that you can latch onto, or singular things in the case of Benoche's character, can become all-consuming. Uh, this notion of creating children, this the mission. Um, it's not that it actually matters, it's that nothing else does, so she needs this too. I, I think you can find... Similar things for a number of characters. I mean, like the the with with Monty. Um, by the end, kind of the way he kind of grows to care for his daughter, who he never asked to exist, because on some level, it's all that's left. This right. relationship with his daughter is all that's left. And even though there is no one to judge him, even though there is no social responsibility to be a father, somehow this relate like he 
he builds this relationship with with a child who he was kind of divorced from the actual making of. He was basically sperm. That's a, that's a very nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, a, to, it's, it's accurate, but it's uh, trying to it's, it's very delicately forget, describe the kind of fucked up scene of events that it's, leads it's, to it's, the it's birth a, of his child. Yes, it's very it's a very kind way to put that, but it's not inaccurate. But no, I no, and actually, and it kind of hints it goes to the lack of bodily autonomy that a lot of these characters right. have. Yeah. No, I was just saying. Wait, just one of the things I really enjoyed about the thinking about the movie, if nothing else, was that like, you know, the lack of body autonomy is part of this, but just how they're on like a really, really like crazy mission to begin with. Anyway, like they're. I mean, I guess part of it in theory is that they're supposed to be. Uh, well, are, wait, are they told that they're getting an energy from a black hole, but they're actually only there for the physical experiments, or like pretty much? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's what's at least implied. Okay. Um, there is the superficial mission of harnessing energy from this black hole. Right. But the the truth of it is they're basically being thrown away to be experimented. Right. So regardless, like they're still near a black hole any either way. It's just that's not really like they're not these people on Earth aren't expecting to ever get anything out of the energy that they're there to get. But that's still like a very like crazy suicidal thing to do for people that aren't trained astronauts is to like be even that close to a black hole to begin with. Yet the danger is like that everyone else in the ships presents are so much greater. Because the point is society has treated these people as not just disposable, just as un, not inhuman, unhuman. Right. Um, they are society's trash. What happens to them doesn't matter. Their bodily autonomy doesn't matter, which is why you can use them as the subject for these kind of horrific experiments. Mm-hmm. They are non-persons. And I know that's something uh, Claire Denis and Barry Jenkins talked about in an interview, that it does, like, that this movie does actually capture on some level the way we think of we, we treat prisoners as these kind of disposable unhuman things who we, we no longer kind of grant personhood to and it's not something that like she's concretely saying like this isn't a movie about let's treat our prisoners better but just in capturing the truth of this scenario and these characters it's something she tapped into pretty well for sure, and I, I, the, I guess the really just Mia Goth and Robert Pattinson and Juliette Binoche are really the, the, the main recognizable actors in this. But I mean, there is one more actor who I think is fairly recognizable for things other than acting. Andre, yeah, Andre Benjamin. But yeah, the I, I felt like I got a pretty good sense of just who all these people were, even the ones that weren't recognizable actors. And um, yeah. and I and I, I I I honestly like I saw the movie twice, and I and I still couldn't remember like just about any of their names besides like uh, besides Monty and Tichurni and it, it that's not meant to matter too much we don't even hear most of their names right. very and, much throughout the movie well yeah like I, um, I look back at like the Wikipedia and IMDB and stuff I'm like did I ever even, even hear that name and it's like yeah for, for a movie to like not to like for me to like not actually like get names of characters but still like feel like I know who all the people are like I think, I think is like really important and it's just um that she's able to accomplish that like in the midst of like so much other like weird shit going on where we're not actually hearing these people talk we're just watching messed up things happen it's just uh pretty well, impressive I mean, part, of, part of what that is is one of the things I love about Denise is the way she doesn't hold her audience's hand she she doesn't do things specifically for the audience to be manipulated in a certain way and that's actually something she talked about in the q and I went to she called it a weakness the moderator and the audience disagreed. She doesn't manipulate her audience. She just presents things as they are to her. And part of that is presenting these characters as they are, which doesn't mean like holding your hand through introducing this aspect of their character and this aspect of their character, because people are not a collection of ticks and tropes. They are people first and foremost. Right. 
And that's how we grow to understand them in her movies as yeah. people. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I just think, I, I think it, it like works really well here. And I, and, and, and I, and I do appreciate that as much as I felt the need to go see the movie again, I don't think there's any shame in feeling the need to see this movie again to fully process it. Cause you're not going to be able Absolutely to, fully, not. You're, you're not going to be able to fully process it. Even if you see it, like, I don't want to say fully process is the wrong word, but to like make sense of everything. That's, that's a, that's a fool's errand. But, uh, I, I, even though like I felt the need to want to go again, it wasn't for uh, lack of being able to develop these characters. So it's nice to like not make it like super, super expositional where like you do, like you have uh, to turn uh, Andre Benjamin's character talking a little bit about some of the discussions that he had with his wife, which I think it's a really nice scene when he does that about just his decision process to go in the film. But like you don't, and you have a couple of flashback scenes too, just uh, that are showing you a little bit about Mia Goth's background and a little bit about how Robert Pattinson ended up there, but they're not like they're not all getting long monologues explaining what they did to end up on death row, which would feel rather uh, perfunctory for sure. No, we get just enough of who these people are, and yeah, like you, you talked about rewatching the movie, and something we've talked about before is I have my own policy where I don't like to rewatch movies. Well, you've never actually explained that to me. I've always wanted to understand that. Yeah, no, actually, so I keep saying I will, and then something comes up, and yeah. I always forget to. I don't tend to rewatch movies, and it's something I kind of picked up from Pauline Kael, okay. who had a very similar policy. And part of the reason is for me and for Pauline is watching a movie for the first time is, an, a, for me, an aesthetic experience. Um, and part of what makes a movie work for me is that feeling of diving in for the first time. It, it's, it's not about spoilers. It's not about being surprised by the plot. It's just about that pure experiential feeling. And you can't step into the same river twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, I just, I don't, there are some movies that I do want to come back to later in life. And there's some movies that it's been long enough since I've seen that I need to kind of refresh my so memory. Have, you, have of you only seen 35 shots of Rome once before as much as you love that movie? I've only seen it once. Wow. I've seen a, like certain scenes from it more. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I, I don't like to rewatch movies and it part, part, another part of it is, and this is just kind of, there's only so much time. I would rather watch a new movie. I would rather make a new discovery for the first time. And so if I'm going to prioritize a block of time for, for watching a movie, I'll tend to watch something that I haven't seen before. And it's, it's kind of both of those. And they're kind of, those two are the main reasons. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get too off topic, but let's say in theory, you, you were the host of a movie podcast and you needed to like, go talk well, actually I, that's a, that's a dumb question because you have like a photographic memory like you haven't seen this movie in like a month and you could still recall it in like more detail than i can because like i feel like Aww. that's like i feel like that's like half the reason that like i go back and like watch movies again it's like i just want to make sure like i know what i'm talking about like if i had not seen this a second time like i would have been like it would have been a pointless for you to even do this because i would have been like at such a loss you know sometimes well, no like, there there are certain times when i will like if, if there is a responsibility like to to know every detail about it like yeah. i I wrote a paper on Wild Strawberries in college. Right. Um, Wild Strawberries by Ingmar Bergman is my favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. I knew it pretty pretty well. I can I can recite a lot of what happens from memory. I had I had images frozen in my mind, but I still rewatched the movie just because. I mean, I was writing a paper about right, it, and right, I wanted right, to right. make sure I got everything right. Like, I have a policy, but that doesn't mean I refuse. Like, you have to like tie me to a chair, kicking and screaming for me to rewatch something. It's just I prefer not to. Yeah, and I and it, what's funny is that while I definitely have like a different, I, I I definitely have a different practice than you when it comes to that. I, I could totally see, I could totally understand it in the context of something like this movie, uh, this movie, be, this movie being High Life, because like uh, something that 
is like so like so many unique like visual scenes uh, and different things to ex- like that you're just going in and experiencing like it, it almost more than like your standard run of the mill studio comedy or something. I can totally understand where you're coming from on that and why it's just gonna feel like a wholly different thing experiencing like something like this movie for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the second time I watch a movie, it feels more clinical and this isn't a movie I want to view in a clinical way. And that's just me. And I'm not saying like everyone else should have the same policy and no one else should ever rewatch a movie. That's just what works for me. And that's what I, funny enough, I can, I, from. funny enough, I could also see how that, 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 that line of thinking would apply to the last movie we talked about beach from. Yeah, I mean it, that, that, that was that, that, again that, that, a very experiential movie. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like I mean, it, it, a, a wholly different experience from this movie. Uh, but at the same time, like it, it, it's not. And, and as hilarious as that movie was, it's not just like your your comedy that's there to like make you laugh and tell tell a few jokes. Like your something like I don't know, like long shot. Like oh, I'm going to go see you next weekend. Like whatever, whatever you happen to see Seth Rogen in that weekend. It's it, it's it's very it's it's. It's its own weird, unique, trippy visual experience that, like, yeah, I, it's, it's more than formula. It's more than data. It's mm-hmm. it's just something very experiential. And yeah, I think you can say that about Beach Bum, and I definitely think you can say that about High Life. Which, for the record, I said I was going to use a lot of hyperbole on this podcast. Is my favorite movie of the year. You I'm knew, not going to. Well, also, you knew it was going to be your favorite movie of the year as soon as you knew it was going to exist, too. No, here's the thing. I knew it was, but I've also been saying it's going to be my favorite movie of the decade, and I'm not going to say that quite yet there there are a lot of other great movies that oh, yeah. came out this decade so we have, and and we, have and we have seven months left too this is true yeah. there's a, there's some other great stuff coming out this year but it's it's it is as great as i wanted it to be and i had the response to this movie that i wanted to have to it um i was not let down this was the movie i expected claire denis to deliver yeah and yeah i i it's not a movie that i can break down in the most concrete way because so much of the way it works is the way it works unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way it has left me thinking about certain things, the way it left me just basking in the joy of discovery after I left the theater. Um, It was just a very, for me, pure response. Well, and also you said earlier that it wasn't um, just before I want to ask you a little bit about a couple of these performances before I, but first, but first I want to ask you about the the ending because you said you didn't necessarily think it was like, uh, totally uh, dark and sent some kind of like hopeless, bleak message. So, what what is your read on that? I mean, I guess it's interesting because th- so much of the movie does jump back and forth, but like it towards the end, like it does feel like it goes largely, at least for the last like fifteen minutes. You have the scene where they encounter the other ship with the with the dogs on it, and then and then I mean, his do- Willow's daughter is like a little upset that she doesn't get a dog, but then she she kind of figures out that that probably wouldn't have been such a smart idea, and and then and then they go off in the ship. What was your read on that? Um, well, so the thing when I was talking about kind of the fatalist moment is specifically them going off on the ship. Uh, um, fatalist was what you said. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I tend to identify a lot with philosophical absurdism, um, not like literary absurdism, like the existentialist movement. You're, you're a philosophy yeah. major, right? Yeah. Yeah. OK. Um, I'm not going to go give like a whole spiel on that, but there's a moment there, there, there. Like it reminded me a lot of. Camus specifically, because there's this notion in Camus' writing that if you were stranded alone on the planet with no food, no water, no hope of rescue, do you give in to despair and just sit in, just hug your legs and wait to die? Or do you go explore, just go explore the planet and fill these last moments of life with as much meaning and joy and experiential 
feeling as you can. And that's what kind of the ending of this movie represented to me. It's not, it's, it's these characters, it's either them just kind of sitting there with only the hope of isolation or them going off onto this thing that could end with death but could end with something new. It's, for me, that ending represented the ultimate value of possibility, of discovery, of even just the chance of something new and meaningful. You know, Uh, yeah, and the other reason I would say it's not, like, completely um, fatalist or anything like that, and I think it's partially a testament to Robert Pattinson's performance, is that they're not... First of all, that that girl is, like, considering the circumstances in which she was raised, pretty fairly well-adjusted and not as fucked up as you would think she could have been. Uh, I don't know if that... I don't know exactly what that means, but just the fact that she is and she's not, like, as screwed up as, like, a kid you would think you would be, like, a a parent having to... I I think part of what that is is that we are more than just social coding. Right. Um, That even removed from society, people are still people. There is something essential about us that is not just determined by the society around us. Um, and I mean, on some level you have just these two people who outside of societal pressure do that, create this father daughter relationship. Yeah. Um, And it seems rather functional, all things considered, and they seem to get along. Okay. Yeah. But at the uh, same time, the specific, the specifics like signifiers of a typical father daughter relationship don't matter. Um, because they're not in society. So all that matters is the, like all that matters in the relationship between these two people is the relationship between these two people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's there's nothing else there. But at at the same time, like I said earlier, it's not a survival movie and it's very clearly not a survival movie because we don't, we don't, and we don't have to know everything about it, but we know enough about that ship to know it's self-sustaining. He, he, I don't exactly know what's going on where he's having to type messages to someone to confirm that they're going to let life uh life functions uh exist on the ship for another 24 hours he has to like i guess do that every day well but, yeah well specifically what he has to do is originally it was the captain who had to do that right but the captain died mm-hmm. so juliet binoche cuts off the captain's finger i believe hmm. and so she checks in with the captain's finger and basically it's like the the what it's supposedly meant to be is to like make sure no one like stages a coup and takes over the ship and that they're still following the basic tenets of the mission, Mm -hmm. basically to keep the trash in line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. So by the end when Robert Pattinson is, he's somehow controlling it, but it's like, I I just didn't think they actually like anyone on earth would give a shit about them at that point. So I didn't know if it was like, it's automated. Um, yeah, because it's, they, they, they talk about in the movie that it would take years for messages to reach. Right, right, right. Exactly. So I get what he does what he needs to do and the ship's going to sustain them for as long as they want. So it's not like they're just doing it to, like you said, it's, it is more about discovery because they're not doing it to survive or anything like that. And they're not also driven mad. Like a lot of the people were earlier in the film, like that relationship that two of them have is like far more functional than any two characters have in the rest of the film. No. And I think it's actually clear on some level that that relationship is sustaining both of them. Yeah. Um, because even outside society, people as they are, gain value from being around other people and from having relationships. Mm-hmm. Isolation is harmful. It's paralyzing. And yeah. And, and actually one thing I want to kind of make clear about the movie and the, the ending and why I don't read this fatalist is I've seen some people say that that is them committing suicide. And even if it has the possibility of death, I think it's something very distinct from that because it's not them saying, let's go die. It's them doing this thing that represents the possibility of death, but also the possibility of something else 
Yeah. And it's using their moments to explore and go out rather than sit back and wait. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. It, it, it did not strike me as something that was um, quite as dark as some might characterize it, for sure. La- lastly, I, uh, we talked a little bit about Robert Pattinson already. I, I guess I, 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 there's just like a few of the performances I wanted to touch on. I, yeah. I, what did you think when you heard that uh, Andre Benjamin was going to be in a Claire Denis movie? What I thought was if Claire Denis wants to put him in a movie, put him in, a, put him in the movie. I, I trust her to do anything. But also, I mean, I am a massive fan of Outcast. Outcast, like... They're they're great. Andre three thousand is in my top five. He he is really? one of the greatest rappers. Yeah, he, cool. he, so he just is. It's just I I mean I guess as someone that just didn't have the level of familiarity with Claire Denis that you did. I I I mean I was just like I'm intrigued. He's going to be in an A twenty four movie with this well respected uh, director. I'm 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 here for it. It's just it's pretty cool that like I think it was actually a pretty interesting performance when he literally not acted in anything. I, I was like okay, I remember seeing semi pro. Like, he's been I, in some he's been in some stuff. He wasn't especially good in it. To oh, maybe be totally maybe honest. I'm missing like yeah. So like he was uh, in the, the he, he was in the Jimi Hendrix biopic. Right, right. So I, I no I, one saw exactly. So I didn't see that. I, I guess he. Did, I'm looking at his like Wikipedia filmography now, and I, I guess he did an episode of American Crime. Didn't see that. Like I had not seen him since Semi Pro, with in back when I actually genuinely enjoyed Will Ferrell movies, which shows you like how long it had been since I had seen an Andre 3000 performance. And I'm like, I don't remember thinking much one way or the other about him then. So it's just really cool that like. He, first of all, that he was down to do this. I, I, I'm very curious to like how that conversation went when he was first like who who approached you. I don't know if you know anything about that, but I'm just fascinated that he ended up in this movie. She she approached him because she was a fan of, fan of Outcast. Oh, she is a fan of Outcast. Yeah. Okay, so I love Claire Denis. As if, as if you didn't already love her enough, yeah. and then you and then you found that out. I don't know. I just thought it was really cool, and like that 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 character was just like. I, I just thought it was really cool how he was kind of on a different wavelength from everyone else in the movie, but at the same time, it wasn't like it felt out of place. It's like, of course, there might be someone that might like ha- kind of have this attitude towards everything, you know? No, and uh, one of the things, like Claire Denis is very good at working with actors and getting very non-traditional performances out of actors, and at times non-actors. So I, I even if Andre 3000 was not the world's best actor, I trusted her to get what she needed out of him. And also, I'm just because I love Andre 3000, I'm just <laughs> excited about him being in this thing that I was already excited for. Right, right. With pro- possibly my favorite young working actor and my favorite actress of all time. So, uh, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know who was on that level for you. If it was like, if if, if it was like Juliet Binoche or Isabel Huber Look, or someone I, I, else, or I love Robert Pattinson. Juliet Binoche is, for my money, one the greatest working actress, possibly the greatest actress of all time. If I'm talking the greatest single performance in a movie ever, the one that I always go to is Juliette Binoche in Three Colors Blue. And I mean, something like I I, I used to act and I used to want to be an actor. Most of the time in a great performance, I can understand, like, even if I'm not saying I would be able to do it, I can understand what the actor is doing. I can understand how they got there. When I watch a great Juliette Binoche performance, she actually confuses me and I don't know how she does what she does. Because a lot of the performance she does, there is no... There is no safety net, and there is and kind of an impossible nature to a lot of the roles she plays. And I'm insanely impressed by what by the way she works. Yeah, I was just impressed that she made this person so convincingly a villain. And there is one moment where she kind of like yells at everyone. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember specifically. 
what I, I can't I, I'm not remembering exactly the moment in the movie, but she does yell at everyone. She's walking down the corridor, yelling at everyone in their rooms. But other than that, like she's not uh, she's not raising her voice throughout most of this movie. Yet she's like very very scary. And I, I no, she she's very restrained except in certain moments when she lets loose. Right. Um, but even in those restrained moments, like she was still pretty scary. And yeah, I, no, there's a cold there's a cold terror to her character. Like there, there's a cruelty to her character yeah. that is detectable even when she is very subdued. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I really liked about that performance, and I mean, I'm 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 a fan of hers too. Uh, even if I'm not quite as well versed in everything that she that she's done as you are, I I, I never see her and don't think she's great. Uh, you you, men, you mentioned that about uh, Robert Pattinson too. We we already gave him props because he's become such like a savior for like American independent film, um, or I shouldn't say American independent film, but just independent film in general. It's just pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, it's, it's like, kind of it's, it's kind of incredible that like. When Twilight and Harry Potter were both happening, mm-hmm. everyone was saying, oh, the Harry Potter kids are going to go on to have these, like, very interesting, incredible careers, and the Twilight actors are just terrible. <laughs> and that is not really what ended up happening. Like, okay. Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, to me, are two of the best young working actors and actresses of their generation. And Pattinson specifically has been, one, working with an incredible list of directors, Mm -hmm. but two, actually taking projects that he can help get off the ground with his thankfully considerable clout. Yeah, no, it's it's cool that he like. That, I mean, I've never watched a single frame of a Twilight movie. I just, I, it was just never like. I mean, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm above like YA stuff like that. It was just never something that like really interested me. So who knows? Maybe I would have had different preconceived notions of them if I had, but I just hadn't. So I've gotten to enjoy everything they did, and for him to, to do so well in a part that Claire Denis conceived of for Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, obviously, like Philip Seymour Hoffman was an incredible actor too, and so that he can step into those shoes is pretty impressive. But also just that like just the age difference there that she had conceived of the part for and that he was able to just be so convincing in a role that was intended for someone in their fifties is, um, is, is really, really impressive. And I'm, uh, I'm glad that he's, uh, just looking at his IMDb now, I know I keep referencing IMDb that he's still keeping busy. I mean, he's going to be in a Christopher Nolan movie. So good for him. If he wants to do something like that every now and then I'm, I'm more excited to see a new Robert Eggers movie coming out. Oh, really? And then he's, Um, yeah. And he's in the, 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 the lighthouse with Willem Dafoe. Okay, and then he's in that David Michaud movie with about the king that where Timothy Chalamet's playing a king has Ben Mendelsohn too. Well, it's, it's an adaptation of Henry the Fourth. Ah, right. Um, I, I I'm cautiously optimistic about that one because I love that play and I've really liked David Michaud up until War Machine. So okay, also co-written by Joe Edgerton, who and I and I like the things I like the last couple things he wrote um, for for for, what, for for whatever that's worth. But yeah, I mean I um. I, I don't know. Good for him. He's staying really busy. I, I that he's just going to keep cashing in on the cachet that he has from Twilight. We're going we're to keep benefiting from it. So we can agree on that. Uh, do you have any other final thoughts before we sign off, Ben? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot about this movie I love, but one thing I really want to highlight is how much Claire Denis did with very little. Um, like for me, this was an incredible, like visually and just kind of in terms of production design. Yeah, we didn't touch on that. That's, I mean, eight million dollars to do a pretty convincing space movie. I mean, that's that's good stuff. Well, yeah, no, but it's, it's not just that. It's like when we think of kind of sci-fi movies and we think of sci-fi as presenting these impossible things, Claire Denis' conception of space and conception of this science fiction environment felt to me more imaginative and futurist than a lot of movies that have bigger budgets. And like part of it is this hearkening back to the look of Golden Age sci-fi with these kind of very sparse, cold clinical corridors – um, but just the environment of the movie, it read visually, it read to me as so fantastic. 
despite the fact that, I mean, she could have and probably did fill it in like a warehouse somewhere. Right. Yeah, it's a warehouse in Germany, I guess. Um, they, they filmed it there, but yeah, you know, like it's interesting. They they do more than more than a handful of shots of the outside of that ship, and it's just like a, it's a it's a it's a uh, it's like a cube, not a cube, like a, uh, it's a it's a it's, a, it's shape of a rectangle. You know, I mean, it's like just a regular block, basically. And but I mean, at no point at no point do you wish it was something bigger and weirder and more fantastic. It's it, for me, it was perfect as it was yeah i don't need something like super super shiny and fancy i mean it was it was i mean kind of kind of like moon you know that's that's that's, it really i i just kept thinking about that because they both feel so distinct from any other space movie that i've seen just in in the the last 10 years you know like no moon i think is another example of a recent science fiction movie that did some very interesting things with the genre and also did a lot with very little in terms of visuals and production design but even like uh even they, they, they do make something like the garden look like um, I, I I just liked how colorful and lush that looked contrasted against everything else, and it just well, showed that's that, like, actually that's something I don't want to harp on Solaris too much because I know this movie is going to get enough comparisons to Solaris as is the Andrei Tarkovsky Solaris, not yeah. the Soderbergh Solaris. Yeah. Um, but that specifically, and I know, me, and I know, I made that Steven Soderbergh comment earlier. I was in no way I did not have that movie in mind at all when I said that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like. I'm, I'm not this isn't me trying to like shit on Soderbergh they're just they're very different directors oh and I and, love Soderbergh but I did not think his Solaris was good either so you don't need to you don't need to, okay, cool, cool. you don't need to hedge on that at all for me <laughs> thank god because I'm about to leave the podcast yeah, yeah. um but yeah no I uh in, in terms of like Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris there is a shot early on in the movie of a garden and it's the like the water and the dew in the garden mm-hmm. And that becomes a motif that we come back to later on in that movie. And that reminded me of the way the garden was shot in High Life. It just kind of made for this very nice contrast between this very earthy, verdant, green, earth-like environment and the world and environment that we know these characters are actually in. And I think that kind of connects to the ultimate fate of Andre 3000's character. Which I mean, we're we're running long, so I don't know if we need to like go on a full tangent about that. But him choosing to to die by burying himself in the garden was, for me, a very interesting choice of what to do with this character who clearly did have some attachment to Earth. Right. So. No, I I agree. But again, I, uh, I I I certainly appreciated everything that they did with him, and also just being able to like see that see what she can she like you said just visually what she was able to do in with with something like that and at the same time uh have this uh ship that felt so distinct from what we normally see in uh space movies and ha- have both of those visuals be able to exist uh within the same movie I, I i greatly appreciate it um uh but yeah i think i think we've just about covered it and i i really appreciate the five people that are still listening sticking with us throughout this so uh ben before we sign off is there anything you want to plug at all um, not really. I mean, I'm still on Letterboxd as Ben Lubin. Um, but yeah, uh, other than that, no real social media presence because uh, social media is the devil. But uh, yeah, 
I, I just I come on here for the fun of it. One day, then you're a big shot director, and you're forced to get social media by like your management team. I'll just I'll make you retweet the podcast then. Okay, fair um, enough. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O I on uh, Twitter and Letterbox. The the podcast now has its own Twitter feed at Rewind Movie Pod, so you can go follow that too. Or I'll be tweeting out all the like, links to the podcast from SoundCloud and iTunes, and now Spotify. As I'll keep reminding everyone the rewind josh if you search in a spotify podcast you can get it there so uh ben thanks again for the time i'm well I'm, i will hopefully get you back soon um we know you're coming back for that big boss blockbuster first cow later this year uh so that, that that'll be really exciting but well, i'm sure uh, that that one doesn't even have a release date yet so i'm sure we'll have you back before then maybe for a movie that like more than like 300 people in the country see so who knows? We'll, but, we'll aim for 350. Yes. Yeah, so everyone, thanks for listening. Coming up next, we'll have a podcast come out on a long shot. So stay tuned for that. We'll see you next time.